into the first ever episode of the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb. Thank you so much for giving us a listen and thank you equally and even more so for the wonderful support that you've shown me over the course of the past year on Twitter. It's been a wild ride over the course of the last year. We've gone from about 600 followers on January 1st, 2015 to around 30,000 right now and growing on a daily basis. So I can't thank you guys enough for that and I'm excited in 2016 to see what comes and one thing for sure that's going to be a big part of Super 70 Sports this year is the Super 70 Sports Podcast. And we'll kick it off today with a guest that I'm very excited to welcome on. Gus Gerard played in the American Basketball Association and the NBA. And Gus didn't only play in the ABA, Gus played for the wildest, craziest team maybe in the history of pro sports. And that's a that's a bold statement, but I think that it's true. He played for the Spirits of St. Louis, and there's never been another team quite like them. And I'm sure that I'll be able to get Gus to tell a few stories that will highlight exactly what I'm talking about. Gus's credentials are, are quite outstanding. In 1974, Gus was an all-ACC performer at Virginia. He came out early jumped to the ABA with the Carolina Cougars. The Carolina Cougars then moved to St. Louis uh, shortly thereafter. And as a rookie during the 1974-75 ABA season, Gus was named to the all-rookie team. And the following year, he played in the ABA all-star game. The ABA, quite a league, of course, the league that brought us the red, white, and blue basketball, the three-point shot, the slam dunk contest. You could argue that just about all the innovating that was uh, worth being done during the 1970s in professional basketball was happening in the American Basketball Association. So without further ado, let's get him uh, uh, in here right now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline. Mr. Gus Gerard. Gus, thanks for coming on today. My pleasure to be here, Rick. All right, well, Gus, the topic of the ABA is near and dear to my heart. I've been an ABA fan since I can remember, really. And, and the ironic thing for me is I was born in 1971, so I don't actually remember the ABA. So uh, so all of it has been through uh, you know, seeing the highlight films and uh, reading Terry Pluto's great book, Loose Balls, which uh, I know that, uh, that you're a fan of as well. Um, and, and for me, the ABA just sort of stands out as this wild west of basketball that's kind of larger than life. So to, to be speaking with you today is, is really a thrill. And you played for perhaps the wildest team in the wild west, the Spirits of St. Louis. Um, that's right. <laughs> uh, and it would be fair to say that there were a lot of characters on, on that club. Um, 
can you take me back to uh, how you made the decision originally to go to the ABA? Because you were one of the first undergrads who came out and went pro early. Okay. Here's what happened with to me. Um, I was a junior at University of Virginia, and I was ended up runner-up to David Thompson uh, in scoring that year. And I believe on my average, close to a double-double. Uh, and... Uh, and I went and played on the for the World University Games. You know, in between the Olympics, every uh, every four years, the Olympics are held. And in between that, they have the World Games, the World University Games. And I was one of the players selected to play for the USA. And I made that team, and we went down to Puerto Rico. And we ended up losing in that uh, to the Russians. And um, they were grown men, and we were just before the USA put pros in their World Games or their Olympics or anything, and um, I was like the first or second leading scorer. I was either the leading scorer or the second leading scorer on that team, and I played really well, and there was a lot of scouts at that um, at those World Games. So when I went back to UVA that summer, after my junior year, I got an offer from the Carolina Cougars, who offered me like $300,000 to leave school at that time, well, I grew up pretty poor kid in Western PA here and never had much money in my pocket, and that seemed like a tremendous amount of money and everything, but I talked to Coach Holland, Terry Holland, who had just come in uh, as a coach. He was going to be coach my senior year, and um, a couple other people, and they said, hey, look, if you wait one more year, you know, you might get a lot more because uh, your stock is, is high now, but if you have a great senior year, like you did your junior year, you're going to have two leagues bidding against you because the NBA couldn't take people then out under class, so I had the one option. Well, what happened was Carolina Cougars folded, and they were bought out by the three, the two Silver Brothers and Donald Shupak, Um the famous owners now of the Spirits of St. Louis, who had the infamous deal of uh, in perpetuity, uh-huh. where they just finally stopped getting paid forever. First, it was the TV rights. Quite a deal. Anyway, they formed, they, they bought the team and they moved it to St. Louis. And they wanted to make a fresh start there. Um, and so they realized that my rights were to kept with the Carolina Cougars, who had drafted me in the undergraduate draft. And so they contacted me about leaving school and being part of their new team in St. Louis. And they had also drafted Marvin Barnes and Maurice Lucas. And um, they called me up to New York, and I flew up to New York, and I sat down with an agent and the Spirits of St. Louis owners. And by the time I left that night, they had offered me like about, oh my goodness, $800,000 guaranteed money. Mm. for five years and, and like a $75,000 contract. In fact, the whole package came to like just over a million dollars of guaranteed money with bonuses and things like that. Uh, and um, so, you know, once that happened, then I, I left school so to play with St. Louis. And that's how I got into the ABA. You know, that was a tremendous amount of money for anybody back in those days, ABA or NBA. And, you know, I jumped at the chance to go. I, you know, I felt I could compete, you know, on that level. I played against a lot of guys in the summer leagues and things like that and held my own and then playing in the ACC at that time, which was tremendously talented. Well, it always is, but back then it was really unbelievable talent with Thompson and, and the guys at Maryland and Duke and everywhere. And um, I held my own and I knew I could compete. So 
I had confidence going into that I could play. And so then I ended up in St. Louis on the, on the Spirits of St. Louis in their first year in the league, and quite a ride it was for that, <laughs> that year, let me tell you. <laughs> uh, well, that's what we're going to talk about, because you, uh, as you say, in 74-75, and, and, and you, had a, you had a terrific rookie year. I mean, you made the, you made the all, ABA all-rookie team, um, and and it was a it was an interesting ride to say the least. I mean, you formed actually uh, probably I mean the only one that I can think of off the top of my head of uh, all rookie front lines along with Marvin Barnes and Maurice Lucas on that team. I mean, just incredible young talent. Fly Williams, uh, you know, was another young guy uh, on that club. But can you talk a little bit about the about the personalities? I mean, I think one of the things that makes the ABA so fascinating is the period in American history that it covers. You know, the 1970s were a time of excess and it was some of it was good and some of it wasn't so good, but it was just a uh, just a very interesting time in the culture. Uh, of our country, what was it like being a a, a guy in your early twenties uh, with a lot of money for the first time in in your life, uh, finding yourself in professional basketball, and not just in professional basketball, but in the in the ABA? Okay, well, I was I was certainly uh, on top of the world at that time. Let me- let me tell you, Rick, it was it was quite unique to be. I, I, I was a pretty humble guy still at that time. I, I was so grateful that I was getting paid to play a game that I played as a kid and loved. You know, we worked, we played, we practiced two hours a day, or we played a game that was two hours, and I was getting paid for that. And then I get to fly to all these cities and play against you know some of the best players in the world and be a part of that. <laughs> Excuse me. And which was a great, you know, I just had great admiration for that. It was something that I just couldn't believe I was actually a part of and doing. So I, on that end of it, I was really excited and, and and grateful to be there and humbled to be there and everything. But on the other end, I was also one of them guys who, like, you know, we were called the free spirits. And uh, we truly were because back in the 70s, it was a lot of disco going on, a lot of, you know, there was a lot of marijuana use, and there was a lot of cocaine use, there was no drug testing back then in the league. Um, and I liked to party. I wasn't, you know, over the edge on anything, but I was a guy who liked to partake in some of that stuff, and so did not a lot of other people on my team. And it's well documented. I'm not blowing anybody's anonymity or anything, but, you know, what what came out later. And... um I, but I flew under the radar the whole time because we had such exuberant personalities like Marvin Barnes and Fly Williams, and and Maurice was there with us, of course. And Maurice was probably the most serious of all of us. Uh, you know, he took everything very, very seriously right. and wanted to, knew he knew he was going to be a great player and wanted to be a great player. In fact, he he and Marvin would clash a lot uh, because he felt Marvin would goof off too much, and and Maurice kind of clashed over all that. To be a part of that, we had so many young guys uh, at that time that we were all young. We were all into the same things. And um, so then they brought in some stability. They brought in Mike Barr from Duquesne, who had played in the league for a while. They brought in Steve Steve Jones was on the team, mm-hmm. Snapper Jones. And um, they traded for Freddie Lewis right before the season, right even even first game after the season started or you know right after that. We got Freddie Lewis, who... Uh, 
a real stabling influence, who was an ABA legend at that time. His best years were pretty much behind him at the Pacers, but he still had a couple good years left with us. And um, so they kind of settled us down and tried to rein us in. <laughs> but we were so, as the, as the season went on, and we all were putting up pretty good numbers, you know, Marvin was putting up ungodly stats for a rookie when he played and when he showed up. <laughs> um <laughs> Which was, you know, sometimes hit and miss. Um, is it really? I, is, myself, it, I was, is it really true? I mean, the the Marvin Barnes stories are so legendary. Some of them, and I don't know how many of my listeners are really aware of Marvin Barnes and and the legend that surrounds him. Not just in terms of what a great player he was when he came into the league, but just in terms of uh, just being a character. Um, if, if I had to ask you, what are your two or three go-to Marvin Barnes stories? <laughs> what what would you what would you tell somebody who didn't know to say, okay, th- this is this is what Marvin Barnes was like at that time? Uh, well, one really jumps out at me is when we went through our pregame warm-ups. Marvin wasn't there. Nobody knew where he was. We were out there shooting around. Coach called us back into the locker room. There was like about seven minutes left on the clock. We were going to come in for like a two quick two-minute pep talk with the coach and come back out on the floor. Well, here comes Marvin in the locker room with his fur coat on and a bag of cheeseburgers from McDonald's. <laughs> And he looks at the coach, he looks at us and says, never fear, guys, News is here. He called himself News. He's a personal time. Never bad news. He called himself News, you know. And uh, he said, never fear, News is here. And he took off his coat, he put on his uniform, he ate his cheeseburger, he got, the, got out there without warming up. And I think that night he had like 54 points and like 26 rebounds or something. Some godly game that and- was like truly amazing. <laughs> And, that was one of them, you know. And that's the game where he where he uh, chartered his own flight to to Norfolk, I believe. No, or was that no, a, or is no, that a different one? Oh, that's a different one. Okay. That's oh yeah, that's that's. We were up in New York. We were up in New York playing the Nets on Long Island. We flew out of New York City, and Marvin missed the plane. He was out all night or up all night, and he didn't make the bus, and he didn't make the plane. And we flew down to. Uh, Probably Richmond, Virginia, took a bus to Norfolk. I, I couldn't believe, I, I couldn't remember if we were just flying into Norfolk or any of the towns where we had to land to take a bus. But anyway, it wasn't a gr- easy connections to get there. If you missed a flight, you know, a certain flight or connection, you couldn't get into Hampton and uh, Norfolk at those days without going through some other cities. So anyway, Marvin misses the whole plane. He's not anywhere to be found. We're getting ready to start the game. Here he comes in again. Has his big coat on, got his hat on comes in and takes his coat off and he's got his uniform on. Never fear. News is here. And he told, and, uh, I don't know if it's in the free spirits or not, but it's a true story. He told the owners, he said, I got good news and bad news. The good news is here. Or the good news is I'm here and ready to play. The bad news is, is you need to pay the pilot fifteen hundred dollars or twenty five hundred dollars, or we're going to jail. Now, now that was a thing that 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 Fly Williams, my man Fly, he's a he's a character in his own way, a playground legend, to absolutely ball. I mean, this guy was a tremendous basketball player. He just he just couldn't control Fly. Uh, <laughs> but anyway. He, he, we took the bus from the airport, 
And for some reason, back in, I can remember the bus had a, one of those buses. The last seat on the bus was went all the way across. It wasn't like a split seat, like with rows, with the row. It was one of those big seats that went all the way across in the back. Well, Fly, I guess, had laid down back there. He was so tired, and he he went to sleep. And we all got off the bus at the hotel, checking our rooms and everything. And there's no Fly. And the code, uh, or when we came back down, I'm sorry, we checked in that that early that day. When we came back down to leave for the game, there's no Fly, and everybody's coaches and everybody's going, well, what do you mean? Where's he at? You know, somebody called his room and they went to the front desk and they said, well, he never picked up his key. He never checked in. And we're going, well, that's crazy. He was on the bus with us. And we, anyway, so we couldn't figure out what the hell happened, excuse me, to fly. And so, yeah, here it comes a little later. I don't know if it was during the game or right after the game, whatever. All of a sudden, here comes fly into the locker room. He had fallen asleep on that bus. Not one of us even bothered to turn around and look to see him back there. We all got off the bus, mind our own business, checked into our rooms, got some sleep, because we had to play that night. Fly woke up. He was in the bus garage where the buses parked. There was nobody there except a couple German Shepherds watchdogs out on the cement, like in the garage. And he didn't, he was stuck in there. And finally, the night watchman or somebody came on and fly. The guy didn't know, here's a guy in a bus, you know, knocking on the window, saying, hey, I need to get out of here. And the guy, you know, the security guy that's on duty, he's going, what the heck's going on here? The dogs are going crazy. And everything. Well, anyway, they, they figured it out and everything. And here, fly got out and got a variety to the, to the game. So, I mean, those are the kind of things that happened on our team that you can't make up. They just really happened. Uh, <laughs> You know, and and the too, thing that's the thing that's remarkable about it is, is you know, if, lest anyone think that we're we're talking about a team uh, that, that that wasn't good. This is the same team you guys went on in the playoffs that year, and uh, all you did was knock out Dr. J and the defending champs. <laughs> that, that was so bizarre, Rick. Because I will tell you, they kicked our butt. We played back then. You, there were only so many teams in the league, so you played everybody. It seemed like. Every other week, you're playing somebody. We played them 11 or 13 times during the year, and we never won a game. They beat us and beat us bad every time. And then we go in the playoffs because we were the last seed, and they were the first. And we have the first two games in Long Island. In the first game, we were up like 15 or 18 and a half and ended up losing. But what happened was we realized that we could play for them all of a sudden, being up that much, and we just blew it at the second half in the fourth quarter, and Maurice and Marvin were playing possessed in the playoffs. They were, Maurice was getting every rebound. Marvin was scoring and blocking shots, and you know I was running on the break, and Freddie Lewis was just torching the guards for the Nets. And, and then we won the second game, and we had so much confidence, we went back to St. Louis, you know, won those games, and went back to New York in uh, game six. Or was it game five or six? I five. Anyway, he comes five, I believe. Yeah, game Yeah, game five. Freddie backs Brian Taylor down or whoever it was and shoots over him with, you know, as the clock runs out. And boom, that's it. We won it. We, we knock out the yeah. <laughs> I mean, you you talk about what were the odds because you you were right. You guys were 0-11 against them during the regular season. Uh-huh. And then you yeah. then you have a big lead and you know the b- b- kind of blow game one, 
and then just run the table on them after that. I mean, remarkable. Yeah, it was really something. But those guys, everybody was awesome. Don Adams really helped us a lot. He was another, we got him about halfway through the year, so he really was a stabling influence, too, and gave us much-needed muscle and front court help, too. And, um, and, for, and, and Freddie Lewis. I mean, Freddie Lewis meant a lot to that team. Uh, in terms Absolutely. of in terms of bringing leadership as well, right? Because what and one of my favorite things in the in, and I and I want to recommend to everybody if you haven't seen the the uh, ESPN Thirty for Thirty Free Spirits, it's on Netflix streaming. Get on Netflix and watch this thing. Gus is a is a part of that uh, uh, in terms of uh, contributing your your memories of of the of the spirits and in those days. But one of my favorite parts is when the desperation shot goes up. And, and misses, and you guys r- realize that you've knocked off the net. You just throw a big bear hug on Freddie Lewis uh, there under the basket, and you know it's just. Uh, I mean, w- was that for you? Looking back on your pro career, was was that series knocking off the nets? I mean, is that is 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 that maybe the most special single moment that you had as a professional? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. I, we came close with the Denver Nuggets, you know, a couple times because we had such a great team there, but it was ended so disappointing when we lost the last game that the ABA ever played to, to the Nets. And, you know, it was one of those things where we had beaten them most of the year when we played them, and then Julius just went crazy on us and uh, John Williamson and those guys. And But we had some really good moments that year also. Uh, the ABA All-Star game was a fantastic memory and moment. Which you know now the NBA copies with the slam dunk contest and um, well um, that, that was a great great night. That's a really interesting one. Let's let's talk about that because in in December of '75. Uh, well, I mean, basically during the '75-'76 season, the a, the ABA just started hemorrhaging. Uh, I think three team one team folded before the season began. The Baltimore. Claus never never played a regular season game. San Diego Sales folded. Uh, Utah Stars folded, and uh, and by the by the end of the season of the all rookie front line that was so successful for you guys, yourself and Marvin and and Maurice. Marvin was the only guy left in St. Louis. You were in Denver. Maurice was in Kentucky. Um, go going to Denver. Um, what was your reaction when you found out that 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 had gone down and and you were you were going to a new city? Well, I, I, to be honest with you, I was I was really excited about it because one of the reasons was with the team's fold. Moses came into St. Louis and ML Carr was there that year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just a whole bunch of guys were coming. Codwell Jones. I mean, there were so many front court players coming in that I thought, man, when am I going to? You know, just like. I might not play. <laughs> right. and, and I know Larry Brown liked me because he was the one that he and Carl Shearer, the owner, would once drafted me from Carolina Cougars. Um, and I knew Larry liked me, and he like had a, sort of a, he had a, um, a good bond with a lot of ACC guys. We used to see each other at camps all the time. And I knew David Thompson and Monty Cow very well. Um, so, you know, I had known those guys, so I wasn't uncomfortable going there at all. And I knew, as great as that team was, I'd have a chance, you know, to play for the championship. So I was I was pretty excited by them about going to Denver. You know, because Maurice was in Kentucky. You know, Marvin was was there, but, you know, it was getting really crazy there. Uh, it just, 
it was it was a good move for me to go, you know. And then we merged into the NBA, and I got to merge in with Denver, so it worked out well. So in Denver, you're playing with another guy who uh, is just an outright ABA legend in David Thompson, and another guy along with Marvin. David's another guy whose career is a little bit of a, a what could have been story, although he, he, he accomplished more than Marvin did, but what was it like playing with David Thompson on, on a nightly basis? Because if you if you look back and see the highlights of David Thompson, and of course you played against him as well in the, in the ACC, so you knew, you knew very well what he could do. What, what was it like playing with a guy like David Thompson, and how close was he to uh, being at a Dr. J level of ability? It was it was fabulous playing with David Thompson. You know, we had played at some camps together in the summers of our college years, so we played, you know, against each other during the season and in the summers or with each other in the summers on the same team. So I, I loved playing with David. He was an unselfish player, and he was just remarkable because the guy could just he could just do everything. He could play for his size. David was only like six four and a half, maybe six four, and he was athletically. Uh, you know, he, he was a Skywalker. That was his name. The difference between David and Dr. J, David could shoot better from the outside at that stage of the game than Dr. J could. David could jump every bit as high. He wasn't as long, and David had small hands. That was the difference. Dr. J, when he holds a basketball, would be like you or I holding in a grapefruit. Right. How he could palm, you know. David had small hands. He couldn't really palm the ball, so his dunks and stuff, he would have to cup cuff it in his between his forearm with his hand bent over like cuffing it and have to get up you know basically his whole elbow over the rim to tuck it mm-hmm. um, or to two-handed so he couldn't he couldn't do the spectacular one-handed things like Julius but as far as a first step when he would get the ball on the wing or somewhere and, and face you up and, and get down in the position you know and, and give you a job step and, and either take a you know, one quick dribble and pull up on you for a jump shot, or take you all the way to the hoop and dunk on you. He was he was explosive, man. He was he was something else. And you know that team. Not only was David Thompson on that team, but Bobby Jones was on that team, and Dan Issel was on that team, and Ralph Simpson was on. I mean, we were loaded, loaded. on that team. Let me tell you, it wasn't just, it wasn't just about watching David every day. It was about watching all those guys and being <laughs> one of them. You know. Well, it's well. You got. I mean, you guys won the All Star Game that year. <laughs> I we mean, did. we won the All Star Game. It was a unique format. The first, the first place team got to play the All Stars, and it was a great game. I, I loved. I played. I got. I think I had double figures. I made ten or twelve points and eight or nine rebounds, and we won the game. It was a big fourth quarter, and uh, you know the slam dunk contest was halftime. There was a concert after the game, and. Uh, or before the game, one of the two, and you know, McNichols Arena was a new arena, and it was packed with eighteen thousand people, and it was just a fabulous night. You know, it was really, and I think that kind of pushed the merger. You know, seeing the talent that was played that night with Julius and George Gervin and Marvin Moses and uh, David Thompson and Daniels and Bobby Jones and uh, my God, Artis Gilmore. You know, Keenan, Larry Keenan was there, and probably Ron Boone and James Sila. Who knows? I mean, there were so many guys. And, you know, when that finally got some exposure, then 
you know. And let's face it, all the young talent. Marvin was one of the first. Yeah, he was a top pick in the NBA. One, of the, maybe it's not the number one pick out of Philadelphia. He was close. Yeah, I think he, he was. I think he was two. Yeah, the the only person yeah. taken ahead of him was Bill Walton. Yeah. Okay. And then David Thompson and Marvin Webster, who were both in the top three, I believe, in the NBA draft, went to Denver. Uh. And Bobby Jones went to Denver. And and I mean, it, the ABA was getting a lot of talent. And the NBA ratings at that time were down. It was a slow game. It was a lot of physical play. There was not a lot of showmanship. And here's this league that's not doesn't have a TV contract where these guys are becoming legendary players like the Iceman, the Doctor, the Skywalker. Who are these guys? Right. The public wanted to see them. And that's kind of what forced this merger was Dr. J and David Thompson and Gilmore and Moses and those guys. It's ironic that as the league was Sinking uh, and really needed the merger in '76. The that All Star game and the dunk contest at halftime was really just testimony to all the things that the ABA was doing right that the NBA really hadn't caught on to yet. Right, exactly. And I remember Red Arbeck saying they would never do that. They would never have a three point line. And you know, I really loved the ABA red, white, and blue ball. I thought it brought a lot of stuff to the game. You could you could really see the rotation on the ball when it was shot. I mean, it was kind of majestic looking at it, you know, going through the air and stuff and the spins. The doctor used to put it on it with his famous <laughs> spin game, I used to call it, where he'd spin it off the top top of the backboard on the corner of a one place and it drop right straight down into the rim with that English on it and, and the net. And, uh, you know, I thought the AB, the red, white, and blue ball was pretty unique too. I was kind of sad that that never got incorporated, but there was no way the old garden, the NBA right. Red Arbeck, those guys were ever going to bring the red, white, and blue ball over there. It was, they had to, they about, oh, it about killed those guys to just have the three point line come in. <laughs> right, <laughs> and right. And they all used it. And that you took know, a Larry few years. Bird, all day in the age. Yeah, and you can't yeah. imagine, and you can't imagine the game without it now. I mean, it's, it's right. just, you know, people who are uh, of a certain age, you know, those of us that can remember what basketball was like with without that, um, you know, today it's just, I mean, it's a bigger part of the game than ever before. Stephen Curry's, what, what, you know, what's Stephen Curry? He's putting up 10 or 15 a night. Um, I, did you get to see? Did you get to see the slam dunk contest? Were you back in the locker room, or did you, or did you watch that thing? I felt we were all out on the bench. We were okay. right under the right alongside the basket where Julius took his big steps back and ran full court with the ball and took off and just right inside the free throw. His toe just went over by a little bit because Doug Moe and Larry Brown had a bet. They bet like I don't know fifty bucks or something that. Uh, Doug Moe said he couldn't do it. He couldn't take off from the free throw line and dunk it. And uh, Larry was saying he could, so they bet. And so we were all down like on our heads and knees watching. Because uh, <laughs> it, right it was right in front of our bench, that basket that he did it at. And sure enough, when he took off, you know, everybody jumped up and was screaming because nobody saw slow motion of it or a camera exactly. But Doug, we saw that Julius was maybe an inch over the line or so when he took <laughs> off. <laughs> 
Doug was waving his arms like no good, like a pastor <laughs> was knocked out of it. Something incomplete. He was going no good, no good. Larry was jumping around, saying, "Give me my money! Give me my money!" <laughs> yeah, we were right there watching the lab. Absolutely, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's that. Can, can you? Can you? And, I, and I, the other day, I saw a photo on online of you uh, Ding up Dr. J as he was taking a jump shot. Can you? Can you explain to an average person? what it was like trying to play defense on Julius Irvin at, at that time when he was at the peak of his powers? Yeah. It, here's here's the thing that really was troubling about playing talk <laughs> was he was so gifted. I mean, his arms were long. He could jump to the moon, but he was strong, too. Uh, he was he, he had he was just solid and the hardest part of guarding him was any time he could get a step or two on you. If I, I had to guard him many, many times, and if I could D up on him and kind of belly up with him, at that time, um, Julius wasn't the greatest of shooters. Mm-hmm. And there was actually a few times I could get up and I would block his jump shot. And, you know, uh, but if he got one step around you and was able to turn the corner on the baseline or to the middle, or God forbid, if you had to pick him up, if he was coming on the wing on a fast break, it was over. There was nothing you could do. Nothing. I mean, you just, <laughs> if you don't want to be on some uh, Converse all-star poster, you need to get out of the way. <laughs> yeah, I heard uh, you, you made a business decision. <laughs> <laughs> clear the way yeah I, that's uh you know and, and dr j posterized a lot of guys a lot of guys well he's throwing down and and you, and you see the guys with their arms up in front of their face just trying <laughs> just trying to preserve oh. themselves when he came out of umass and nobody really even knew about him at all and he was playing for the virginia squires and I was at UVA, it was my freshman, I think, or sophomore year, and he was still with the Squires before he moved up to the Nets. I would go down to the Richmond Coliseum because they would play a few games there every year outside of Hampton and Norfolk. They would come up to Richmond and play, which is only a, maybe an hour drive from Charlottesville. And uh, I saw Julius Irving as a young, just came out at one year after UMass or whatever, after sophomore year, and... I saw him dunk on Artis Gilmore one time where his it looked like his whole arm was on top of the backboard. Oh. He was up so hot. His arm went up with him and Julius just kept going up and up. I went, Oh my God, who is this guy? <laughs> and you gotta go that high to dunk on Artis Gilmore, I mean yeah. you know. Yeah, and everybody knew in the state Virginia who 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 Doctor J was. Oh. And then once once, you know, we got to New York and everything then it really you know, started to blow up. But the people in the NBA, and, and you know, I mean, I'm so happy that Doc got to win an NBA championship. And it was ironic that he got to win it because Moses it was really the key to turn that team around. Mm-hmm. So Doc could would get his NBA championship when Moses came, another ABA guy, uh, to the Sixers. Because he's such a class act and such an ambassador for the game. And by then, even though he was a great doctor in the NBA, his best stuff, people never saw because they didn't have a TV contract in the ABA. You know, Doc was already five years, six years into his pro career. And by then you learn to take it a little easier on your body a little bit. You don't do his craziest things and try his craziest things. But a lot of his stuff are just memories that people are going to have that a lot of people have never seen. I think that's part of 
for me at least, I think that's it, it's tra- first of all that's tragic. I wish that we had all the footage of all these great plays yeah. because it, it, you know, it, as you say, I mean, there's untold things that Dr. J and David Thompson and, and Marvin Barnes and George Gervin did that uh, all we have to go on is the is the oral legend. But I think when I was a kid, that was sort of part of the allure for me is who, what was this league with the red, white, and blue ball? Like you said, I, th- I think particularly as a kid, you see that ball and it's just so visually striking and um, and and who are these guys? Uh, who 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 were who were these men? And I think you know we're we're at the fortieth anniversary of the merger, and uh, I think that there are many fans, probably more fans than not, that are that are younger that may not even be aware of the ABA. Quite frankly, right. and, you know they don't even know that the San Antonio Spurs were an ABA team. Right, exactly. Or the Indiana Pacers or. Or whoever at Denver, but yes, absolutely. There's a whole general. Well, you know, but just if you think about it, Rick, there's a whole young group of kids. I had a little camp this past summer, and I mean, there's there are kids in my camp that never saw Michael Jordan play. Now, oh. you know, <laughs> it's and you know, so it's all LeBron, it's all Kobe now, and now Kobe's going to be gone, and you know, it's going to be LeBron and whoever you know, takes over the league in the next years. And uh, there, there are kids that are, don't even know, you know, Michael Jordan. Well, he wasn't better than LeBron, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <So>, yeah. <laughs> you sure about that? <laughs> you might want to go to YouTube and do some searches. Uh, but you're right. You're right. I mean, it's been almost 20 years since since uh, uh, Jordan's last championship, and. You know, I, I teach, uh, you know, I'm a college professor by day, and I look at the age of, of the students every semester, and I think to myself, okay, you know, this this crop of freshmen were born in 1997 or whatever, you know, when did they come of age? What can they, re- what, what do they remember? And, and you're right, for a lot, for a lot of these, uh, a lot of these kids, it's not just the, the ABA is, they they don't know about the next generation after the after the ABA, I and, I, and you know and I'm wondering for you you know as a you know, I think you're maybe 23 years old or something like that when the when the leagues merged, did you have any any sense uh, 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 at that time as a young man of kind of like this is it when that 76 NBA Finals was over sort of the you know the fact that you did play in the last ABA game, or or at that oh, yeah. time, you know, do, was that was that something that was present in your mind even then? Absolutely, yes. We were we were devastated. We knew that was the end of a, a league that we talked about for a long time. Mm-hmm. When we were, let me tell you, we were all happy, thrilled to be going into the NBA and looking forward to that. And, you know, being on the on in a league where we knew the paychecks were going to be there. Even though I never had a problem with that, there were some teams. Guys were, you know, they, they had to take their checks to the bank the second they got them in the ABA. Right, the right. Not be here. Yeah. But for the stability and, and all that, we were so excited about that. But we were so devastated when I was on the Denver Nuggets. So we lost that last game because we knew that was it. There'd never be another ABA championship, and we got a chance to win the last one, and we didn't. Yeah, it was a. It was. Definitely, we thought about it for sure. Still think about it. Well, I gotta ask you one one last ABA question here. If you had to put together your the the, the Gus Gerard ABA All Afro team, 
who who were the guys okay. that were, who were the guys that were bringing because this was the I mean this was the height of the Afro era I mean you know in in style and all that who were the guys okay. that you look back on it that are on that Mount Rushmore of ABA Afros. Okay, uh, well, Julius for sure, because when he, his afro was so big, it would blow, he looked like he was 6'10 or 11 walking <laughs> around. He was 6'7. And it would blow back, like you put your head out of a car window and the air blows your hair back. <laughs> That's when he would fly through the air, his afro would That's blow so back. That's so true. That's so true. Uh, so, so Julius for sure, Darnell Hillman, the original Dr. Duncanstein before Daryl Griffith. Um, Darnell Hillman for sure had a, had a big beautiful throw, man. He had a purpose too. Uh, he may have been the guy. He, he could be the MVP of the team, Darnell Hillman. Yeah. If guys don't know, uh, they need to do a Google search and see him. Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, let me see. I don't know who else had. Oh, it's good boards. I played. No, not many had big ones. I played. Larry Keenan, I think, had a yeah. uh, pretty good throw. Uh, um. The white Bo Peep Lamar, the raging page in southern Louisiana. Cues. Yes. Uh, he had a big throw. Um, uh, Steve Jones, Steve Snapper Jones had a, he was on that team. He had a pretty good throw, too. I don't know. Maybe you can refresh my memory. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Art, I guess Artist Gilmore is in there somewhere, probably. Oh, yeah, Artist. Of course. Of course <laughs> but that's a pretty good, that's so a pretty good squad. Yeah, artist Darnell, Darnell Julius, <coughs> Keenan, uh, Darnell Hellman, Keenan, uh, Oak, people Lamar, and uh, that's a pretty good team. Right that's there. a squad. You can sure. you can win with that team. I'm telling you right now. Well, I, well, you know, of course, after the merger. Um, you you know as you said you were you were with the Nuggets and, and and went over to the NBA for several years and and one thing that I have to ask you about your time in the in the NBA is you are uh, among the few uh, professional basketball players who actually played for Dick Vitale as a coach. We all know Dickie V, but you knew Dickie V as your coach uh, for a brief time with the Detroit Pistons. What was that like? Okay, here's. I'll tell you real quick because I know we went a little over here. <laughs> Bob Lanier, the dauber, was like the mayor of uh, well, Detroit. He was Mr. Piston, Bob Lanier. He and Dave Bing. Well, Dave Bing was gone by then. Bob was there. He and Dick Vitale were business partners. Dickie V was the coach of the University of Detroit Titans. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he... Bob Lanier had this brainstorm. They went through a lot of coaches, Herb Brown and Bob Kaufman. And people were, they were firing a lot of coaches. They couldn't find anybody. The team was in Cobo Hall. The attendance was down. So Bob Lanier got together with the owners and decided they, to bring in Dick Vitale, with his personality and everything, and the local guy in Detroit, to bring him in and give some, give some spark to the uh, people and everybody. And, in Detroit, we were moving out to the Silver Dome at that time, not not the Palace, but the Silver Dome, where the Pistons played before, uh, after Cobo Hall. And Dickie V came in. He and Bob had been business partners in some camps or something, anyway. And it was just like, just like you see him now. I can remember John Shoemate in practice. Uh, Dick Dick Vitale was was. Come on, baby, shoot. You're shooting you're my man. And he'd start singing Notre Dame fight song for shooting to get him fired up. He'd start singing it. And then 
And then he got one of the bigger agent next year, shooting Leon Douglas. I mean, he was so proud. I only got one eye, and I can see everything out here better than you guys. And, and, oh my God, he was so, he was he was just like he is. But then, then at halftime, one of the games in the exhibition season, because I was only with him. Thing it worked out well for me. He had brought in John Long and Terry Tyler from the University of Detroit, and they made the team. And they let me go, and I ended up in Kansas City for a couple of years, which was really good for me, too. It was the Kings. But anyway, before he let me go, it was just exhibition season. And Bob Lanier, um, Dick Vitale at halftime, one of the games, you know, Bob was one of the guys. He didn't come to, to training camp in shape. He played his way into shape. <laughs> um, so he was kind of jogging through his, the exhibition game. Didn't get back on defense one time or something. And Dickie V says at halftime, He's up at the chalkboard going, and Bob, you need to get your big, you know, ASS down the court here and get back on defense or this and that. You know, Bob probably took a cigarette out of his mouth. Because <laughs> <laughs> back, then, back then, some guy still smoked in the locker room. Hey, he was the 70s, and, uh, man. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and Bob picks up the plastic trash can and picks it up. We're going, what the heck's he doing? And he gets up and he just fires it at Dick Vitale. He throws the trash can from about 20 feet away right at Dick Vitale. It crashes against the chalkboard and everything like that. And I just, oh my goodness, what is going to go on here this year? But, you know, Dickie B, he laughs. Well, I heard him doing the game yesterday on TV, I think it was, and he was talking about, they fired me after a year. And, you know, I was in the coaching fraternity. They fired me. <laughs> it was just a disaster for him as an NBA coach. But God bless him. He's in the Hall of Fame now. He is. He is. Is Dickie V? You got that's priceless though. And Bob Lanier chucking a garbage can at Dickie V. I would. Now I, I wish we had footage of that. I would pay good money right. for for even grainy footage of that. Check Dick's reflexes. Well, you know, Gus. Let me let me ask you before I go. I know that you've dedicated uh, a good portion of your post basketball career to to drug counseling and, and and helping those that that are having problems in that area. Could you could you kind of tell me a little bit? About, about about what you do today and kind of your, your post-basketball life calling? Sure. Um, you know, I, after my own personal struggles with substance abuse, you know, I got clean and sober with the help of John Lucas down in Houston, Texas, who is a big advocate for recovery. He had a treatment center. He still helps people to this day. That man saved my life. Um, we knew each other from the University of Maryland in Virginia, and then I ended up in his rehab center in 1993. And, uh, I'm so grateful for John Lucas and what he's done for me and everybody, really. So anyway, he he inspired me to get into the field. I went and got my counseling degree and counseled for many years in Texas and had my own treatment centers and everything. Uh, I'm currently in western Pennsylvania now where I, I recently worked with Genesis House, a nonprofit uh, where I do all substance abuse education, and now I'm doing it for the city of um, you know, in Union Town, surrounding areas, and I help people get into treatment, or I mentor them and counsel them on the side, not officially because I've retired my license, but I still mentor them, and I uh, consult with a couple places, with the city of Union Town and the county of Fayette, and with the employee assistance programs around here to help their employees or children of the employees that need help, and just, you know, that's my passion now is just helping, helping people. I can't keep what I have unless I give it away, and so I just give it away. You know, I help try to help people like they help me. That's that's yes. how this thing works. That's fantastic. Thank you for 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just in general terms, if if someone has a problem or if they know someone who has a problem, uh, what's the first step that somebody needs to take? Well, if, if, if it's if it's an individual, and they know it. They have to they have to make the call. You know, they have to be willing to make the call, and they have to be really sick and tired of being sick and tired and want to get help. If they're just doing it to save their marriage, or you know, not be kicked out of the house with their mom or something like that, or mm-hmm. something like that, or to save their job, it's not going to work. They're doing it for all the wrong reasons. They have to do it for themselves. You have to be selfish and say. I want to get sober. I want to get clean. I have to do it. And then all that other stuff falls into place. Their family gets builds trust back up. Their employer trusts them again if they still have a job or they go to a new job. You have to build the trust up over a period of time. And the way you do that is taking care of yourself first. You know, so submitting the problem and seeking the help for it. Well, I know I'm, I'm familiar with the work that you've done, and and uh, you know I it, it's a great thing that you're doing, and and certainly I know that you know based on your on your life experiences, it it, it means a lot to you to be able to give back in that way. So um, that's terrific, and 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 uh, you know most of all, I just want to thank you for being my guest today. Uh, the, the, these stories have, have, have you know I mean I'm telling you right now, some of these stories I, I I'm going to be thinking about them later, and I know that I'm just going to start chuckling in my my wife's gonna say what's wrong with you <laughs> the fly williams the fly williams story i mean come on i mean not many people know that a lot of the stories were in loose balls you know some of the marvin the time machine thing where we changed time zones from louisville to st louis and the time, they, we got in and we got home an hour or two minutes we got into louisville two minutes before we left St. Louis or something like that. Marvin's going, I ain't getting on the time machine. He didn't understand that. I can't remember the time change. Those time zones were not Marvin's strength. Time, you know. those, are, those are all the book loose balls. But the Fly Leaders book it, the story is, not many people know about that one, but I sure remember that one. Oh, that is, that is beautiful. That is absolutely just beautiful. But So, Gus, hey, I, I got to tell you, you got you got an open invitation to come on this show anytime. I appreciate your, your generosity with your time. And, and your memories about what has to be one of the most awesome periods in, in the history of professional basketball. Thank you, Rick. I really enjoyed my time with you and reminiscing about all these stories. It's great. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much. So there you have it. Gus Gerard, what a great guy. And those stories absolutely kill me. Dick Vitale dodging a wastebasket from... Uh, an angry Bob Lanier. Bobby, baby, don't throw the wastebasket at me. Come on, baby. Too much. And if we've learned anything today, it's always check the team bus before you park it overnight because you never know who might be taking a nap. <laughs> Next week, my guest is Todd Radom. Todd is the man who designed the logos and uniforms for the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim as well as the Washington Nationals. He designed the logo for Super Bowl 38. Todd's done more things than I can mention here. He is a man of immense talent and next week we're going to be talking about 1970s uniforms. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Join me then on the Super 70 Sports Podcast. Thanks a lot, guys.